0: conversations um, and we encourage you to keep those conversations going after the service Um, the sermon passage this morning is Song of Songs chapter 3 verse 6 through to chapter 5 verse 1 Um, so I'll start reading from Song of Songs chapter 3 Uh, verses 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon. With the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding on the day of the gladness of his heart behold you are beautiful my love behold you are beautiful your eyes are doves behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. your teeth like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies until the the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of Myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no floor in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchid of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is the word of the Lord.
1: good morning everybody uh my name's sam if we haven't met um and it's sam if we have met it's the same it's the same name um welcome uh, i'm one of the pastors here it's my privilege to kind of have a go at that passage um this morning i'll pray please pray for me and we'll we'll, we'll go heavenly father all of your word is a treasure ought to be a treasure to us and there are just wonderful things to see and so help us by your spirit to see it to be to marvel at your goodness in all the ways it points even beyond itself to the most wonderful love story ever told the love of a father who sends his son to save us help us to see all these things we pray in jesus in jesus name amen In 2016, a man named Lawrence Ripple drove to a nearby bank in Kansas City at around 2:30 p.m. He walked into the teller and he handed the teller a note, and the note read this: "I have a gun. Give me money." So the teller kind of was a bit freaked out, gathered together as much money as she had as about 3,000 dollars. He then took that money and then walked across the bank lobby and just sat on a chair. When a security guard approached him, he said to the security guard, yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for. The police very soon, who was only like a few blocks away, um, came and arrested him. And when he was asked what he was doing and why he was doing this, he answered that he would rather get arrested and go to jail than be at home with his wife any longer. (laughs) They'd been married for 33 years they just had an argument about a broken dryer, and it was enough was enough. Um, funnily, and even better, is that about a year later, he was sentenced to, sentenced to six months house arrest <laughs> with his wife. Isn't that fantastic? Well, we're continuing in the Song of Songs, which is actually a bit of a different picture of that, of marriage. And what we've seen so far is actually an, an idealized picture, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. If you are, you know, you're like, you're looking at this country girl and a shepherd boy, and they're just so adoring all the time. And if you're a bit cynical, you're like, oh my goodness, just give it a few years and then get back to me, right? But it is an idealized picture. And there's a place for this, we used this kind of illustration last week, and it was... Um, that Phil Reichen used of, of putting a puzzle together, that, that if you have the pieces of the puzzle and they're all scattered out everywhere, what is very helpful when you put it together is a picture. Oh, we're, the, these fit together and they create something actually worthwhile, something beautiful. And our world has scattered the pieces of sex, romance, desire, all over the place Broken pieces everywhere. And as we go through the the book of the Song of Songs, it is like we are putting the pieces bit by bit back together so that we would have the beautiful picture that God has for us, His design. But the book doesn't only give us this couple, the book also gives us another way that you might go, and that is the way of Solomon. Solomon famously got all of this terribly wrong. In our passage this morning, it's broken up into two, two, essentially two poems. The first is the picture of Solomon. Here's the, here's the vision of Solomon when it comes to marriage. And the second one is the marriage and wedding night of our country girl, our shepherd boy. And they really do contrast each other. Asking the reader, I think, asking us this morning, which way will you go? Which way will you choose when it comes to love and marriage and sex? There are different visions of marriage in our world hey um partly because marriage is a common grace gift that god has given to the world it's not just christians who get married right? it's a gift that's given to all of the world and so naturally we find ourselves in a culture with all kinds of different views on what exactly marriage is genesis 2 makes um adds this note after the very first marriage ever adam and eve and and Moses writes this, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There are essentially three fundamental realities that makes a marriage a marriage. Like you have lots of relationships in your life, and, and a lot of them I'm sure are loving, but these three things will turn a relationship into a marriage, and that is this, that it is a lifelong commitment, that it is monogamous, that is one man, one woman, and that it's male and female. So our vows that we say when you get married summarize a lot of this, isn't it? When we say words like forsaking all others from this day forth as long as we both shall live. Now, our culture has undermined, I think, all three of those elements. And, and, and by doing that, and, well, that, the way that was done was first by reinterpreting marriage in this way, primarily seeing marriage as a, in the in the kind of realm of self-fulfillment, and self-expression or self-discovery, it's the kind of "you complete me" marriage. Um, Louise Perry, in her book I mentioned last week, um, it's, it's it's a very helpful book, "The Case Against the Sexual Revolution." She wrote this. She said, "In the affluent 1960s, we entered the era of what Finkel—that's a, a psychologist who studied." Um, marriage trends throughout history so in the affluent 1960s we entered the era of what finkel refers to as the self-expressive marriage in which self-discovery self-esteem and personal growth became the key markers of a marriage's success and i think that you can play that out if you put that at the center of what marriage is self-expression, self-fulfillment, self-discovery, you will very soon undermine all three of those fundamental realities that makes marriage a marriage. Think about it, if marriage is just about self-expression and self-discovery, why must it be lifelong? What if I change? What if I self-discover that I'm different to what I used to be? What if I fall out of love? What if this person doesn't fulfill me anymore? Don't I just kind of actually owe it to myself to get divorced? And our culture says, absolutely you do. Put yourself first. They would applaud that, right? They would say, you know, the, the bravest thing you can ever do in your life is be you, you know, and chase your dreams and do what is right for you. Stunning and brave. Um, the New York Times had an article in 2021 by a legal scholar named Lara Bazelon. She was writing about her own divorce and she wrote these words. She said, I've learned that divorce can also be an act of radical self-love that leaves the whole family better off. I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him, I divorced him because I loved myself more. So no-fault divorce came to Australia into Australian law in 1975, it's defined on on the Family Court of Australia website like this, no fault divorce. This means that a court does not consider which partner was at fault in the marriage breakdown. The only ground for divorce is the irretrievable breakdown of the relationship demonstrated by 12 months of separation. So before that, to get a divorce, you actually needed to show real reason like real cause, and they were mainly around the three A's. It was either adultery, abandonment, or abuse. But now, you can have any reason. You can literally have no reason. It's that's what it's called. It's no fault. No one's looking for any fault, and the marriage can be over. There's this TV show that people watch called Married at First Sight, um, and a friend of mine, I've never seen it, so there's a, but a friend of mine said, you should look up, well, uh, this was a, a long while ago, you should look up the vows that they tell each other and just have a look at this. So I, I, I did what I do, I YouTubed it, and, and there it was, the very first vows that were said to one another on Married First Sight. It went like this, the celebrant asked, Michael, do you take Ronnie to be your wife, to love and support her in every way and cherish her throughout this marriage? See what he's asking? Essentially, will you be married for as long as you are married? Isn't it? So, for as long, yeah, I will do that. For as long as this marriage continues, I will definitely be married. Wow, breathtaking, heart-fluttering type language, isn't it? Well, there goes lifelong foundation. But then think about the second fundamental reality of marriage. If marriage is just self-expression, self-discovery, maybe intense feelings towards another, why must it be monogamous? What if you discover in your self-discovery that you actually have intense feelings for more than one person? So then you might have polygamy, where one guy might be married to multiple wives, or polyamory where every, a group are kind of all married to one another. What foundation do you say that's not okay if marriage is just self-discovery and self-expression and intense feelings? What prohibits these things? Dan Savage is a well-known gay rights activist in America and he ridicules the idea and even the possibility of monogamy. He thinks it's ridiculous, it's unnatural, and he promotes what he calls monogam-ish relationships. Monogam-ish If we if we kind of like just be more realistic, and we mainly be monogamous, but we allow one another a bit of leniency, well, we won't get hurt when that like inevitably happens that the, the spouse is unfaithful, and so you just lower the bar, and then no harm, no foul if it happens. And so, monogamy's gone. But then third, think about it, if marriage is just self-expression, it's self-discovery, it's kind of intense emotional feelings, why must it be male and female? Australia voted in the plebiscite in 2017 on the question, and this was the question, should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? Now, I I was thinking about this, I don't think, well in a sense it does, but that question does not necessarily itself redefine marriage. I think what that question does is presume a redefinition of marriage so that you can even ask the question, can, should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? It presumes that is something that a same-sex couple can actually do. It presumes that children, marriage is not by definition male and female and therefore has the potential to bear children and that children would always... or. Um, ideally be raised by their natural mother and father it presumes it is just self-expression so why not open it up to same-sex couples but by definition same-sex couples cannot actually get married so we can't actually vote on that that's just it's it's, it's actually an impossibility we don't have a vote to say we are going to uh, from now on allow that pigs will fly right we don't do that right because you can vote on it that's that's just Actually, won't happen. That's they can't possibly do that. You would have to redefine flying as rolling in mud, and then we would be able to vote on it and say yes, okay, pigs can fly. But marriage was not actually redefined at the plebiscite. In our culture, it was already actually redefined with no fault divorce, and it was actually before that already redefined as putting at the centre self-expression, self-discovery. I need to be completed and you complete me we don't have time to describe all the brokenness that's come from all of this broken families fatherlessness surrogacy which separates children from the mother who birthed them increased likelihood of every kind of suffering physical mental but once again we come back to the song the greatest song the song of songs and we get god's design through poetry of love of sex of marriage and again it's it's like, it is like a cool breeze isn't it it's it's wonderful It's helpful as we get into our passage just to remember what we saw last week because last week really does tie in and flow into what we're having a look at this week. And so last week, if you remember, you saw that the man, he he came to her, he was bounding over hills and mountains and he came to her but there was separation, it was behind a wall but he was like, come on, let's go, it's spring, it is time for love but she in the end says no, not yet and sends him away. So then the first poem of chapter 3, she has this dream at night, and she goes out looking for her man, her beloved. She gets up out of bed. She can't find him in the house, looks in the streets, the public square. She's looking everywhere. She comes across the watchman. She's like, have you seen him? No, they don't really answer anything. They're probably like, we don't know who you're talking about. And then she finally finds him, grabs hold of him, and they go back to her mother's house. Now, chapter 3, verse 6. Here is now a vision Of Solomon and his wedding it begins like this what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant so our attention is drawn into the wilderness something is coming it's kicking up quite a dust storm like smoke it's identified in the next verse as Solomon's bed we'll get there in a second But it's not surprising then that if it's solomon's bed that it might have these kinds of smells of expensive and foreign perfumes a reminder that solomon has had in his bed many foreign wives he has spent nights with many foreign wives in that bed and although it's been a very busy bed it exists notice in the desert a place of barrenness a place of emptiness Commentator Ian Proven writes this, he says, it is the antithesis of the Garden of Eden. To name the royal bed a desert is to offer an understanding of it that is very different from Solomon's understanding in all his wealth and cultured sophistication. It is also a contrast most forcibly to the lovemaking that happens there, there with Solomon, with the lovemaking that happens elsewhere in this song, which is so routinely associated with fertility and abundant vegetation the so verse 7 behold it says look it is the litter of solomon the litter is his his kind of traveling bed his palanquin it says around it are 60 mighty men some of the mighty men of israel all of them wearing swords and expert in war each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night so now add this kind of vision to solomon's bed as you picture it add to it safety security, power, he's better surrounded by mighty men, he says, mighty men, they are battle ready, they have swords, they are ready to fight, they have been battle tested, 60 of them is a lot, it's double the 30 that King David had guarding him and they protect him, notice, against the terror by night and night is obviously when the most danger is, that's when the kind of evil deeds happen at the night time, like if he's going to get assassinated and he is the king, it would probably happen by night. And Solomon is not interested in having any risk to his bedroom, to his bed. No danger there. So you can already see some of the contrast with the previous poem, hey? Where she does not just stay safe in her bed at night, but actually she goes out into the terrors of the night, into the dangers of the night, looking for her beloved. She finds guards there, but they are useless. Again, Ian Proven writes this, he says, here is the great Solomon driving around in his pretentious chariot bed. He is the mighty Solomon, but he needs 60 elite warriors to stand around his chariot and help get him safely through the night. In truth, he cuts a rather pathetic figure, inhabiting a lonely world of materialism and sexual conquest. To be sure, Solomon, if you just saw him, like, he looks impressive. He'd be like, wow, this looks amazing. But it is only on the surface that it looks that way. Verse 9 describes more of his fancy chariot bed. King Solomon says this, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. I doubt that. I doubt that. I think he made that carriage in the same way that I can make a house. It's like you get someone else to make the house, and I can't see Solomon on the tools making himself in this chariot. But it is an amazing chariot. He uses wood from Lebanon, the best, most expensive in the in, in the world. It says he made its posts of silver. Literally, it's actually pillars of silver. So these are it's kind of like exaggerated, over the top wealth and opulence. He has these pillars. Of silver. Its back or its base is gold. So he uses gold to hold, put into place his giant silver pillars. Its seat, it says, is of purple, purple cloth, very expensive, very rare, costly. And then it says this notice, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So the the material that inlays this bed is not actually made from a kind of physical material, it's love. A metaphor, I think, for all the women who have given love to Solomon in that bed. His bed is inlaid with love from them. But notice it says nothing about his love for them. Just that they give it to him. Verse 11, go out, O daughters of Zion. So that's the same daughters that were just mentioned that have inlaid his bed with love. Go out to them And look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Come and look. Do you see him? Great King Solomon on the day of his wedding. He has a crown, the crown that his mother gave him. Notice that that sex and romance is tied to his power, his kingship. He can command love. Look at him. Look at the gladness of his heart. Do you notice who it's all about? It's all about Solomon. On his wedding day, it is all about him. He is center stage and he, the spotlight is on him. We don't, she, the bride, where is she? It doesn't actually matter. She's an accessory. She's just another trophy. So the contrast with everything we've seen so far in the book kind of mount up, don't they? Between what you're seeing here and then what we've seen of the, the country girl, the shepherd boy, theirs has been an exclusive love. Their bed was green like the countryside, in chapter 116, not purple. The beams of their house were said to be cedar and pine, not gold and silver. Their home is humble, but his is full of pride. What they lack in material things, they make up for and enjoy for one another. Solomon is a desert, while the couple is all about spring. Solomon's love is coerced, but theirs is very willing. His love is safe, but feels kind of sterile. Theirs is risky and exciting. Solomon buys love for a price, but theirs is free. Solomon's attention is all on himself, but theirs is always on one another. So that's the first poem. The second one, we move into chapter 4, and we come back to our couple, and it is their wedding day, or more specifically, probably, their wedding night. Now we get the voice of the shepherd, and he doesn't talk very much about himself. He's very different. On this day, he points all the attention to the bride. Isn't that how it's meant to be, eh? On the wedding day, the attention goes to the bride. That is who, and that is who she is now. She is a bride. For the first time in the book, he calls her bride throughout this poem six times. So this is the wedding night, the moment of consummation. But of course, before he touches her body, notice he touches her with his words. He touches her heart. Before her body cj mahaney wrote this to men in his book sex romance and the glory of god he said you must touch the heart and mind of your wife before you touch her body i like that and that's exactly the pattern in this text he speaks first carefully composed words i think to touch her mind and to touch her heart verse one he says this notice how it starts behold you are beautiful my love behold you are beautiful. He's just like, wow, you're beautiful. It's like he does. It, he's kind of speechless for a moment, and so he just thinks, I'll just repeat that. Wow, <laughs> like you are beautiful. He describes what he sees first: her eyes. Your eyes are doves behind your veil eyes are like the window to the soul and hers are doves gentle beautiful so if you remember if you remember last week she's not a dove kind of hidden in the cleft of a rock anymore like i can see you i want you but you're hidden and inaccessible to me well she's only the like the, the thinnest kind of inaccessible right now isn't it there's a veil the smallest possible obstacle is left hair he goes to her hair your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead we do have to be careful when I say it man we, like we, we do need to work on how we speak and how we kind of say and touch our wires with our words you don't just like quote Song of Solomon per se right so you try this out and you go she'll probably say have you ever seen a flock of goats going down the mountain of Gilead I've not I, I, I did google it I, I found no footage of it so all I got was goats on slopes And it was random slopes, and it wasn't even a flock, and, and they were mainly going up. It was very impressive, but not this. But she knows, but she knows, and that's the main thing. She knows what that looks like, and she would find it a compliment. Probably speaking about how her hair kind of flows from the top of her head down over her shoulders. Next, her teeth. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Essentially, I think he's saying, you've got white teeth, they all match, like they're in pairs, and you've got all of them. It's like a dentist's nightmare, right? No business. But that's nice, isn't it? All your teeth. And again, I mean, if you try that, if you say, oh, I just love that you have all your teeth, there's like, that's actually offensive. Like, <laughs> what did you think? You, what, what did you think? What were you expecting? Okay. Then her uh, her lips and mouth. Your lips are like scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. He likes her red lips, and the word for mouth there actually gets at her speech. So he doesn't just love her mouth, but he loves what comes out of her mouth. Her ma- her words. Okay, and he goes to her cheeks. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. So, like rosy complexion, colour of pomegranates. If you cut it open and open it up, he moves down to the neck. Verse four: Your neck is like the tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Again, he like liken the neck to a tower. It's like it's 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 wide and tall, but maybe it's it's more like it's like you hold your head like a royal. It's royally. It's elegant. It's dignified. It's assured. It's decorated beautifully with necklaces and jewelry. Okay, he's moved down to the neck, and now he moves down a bit further to her breasts. Verse 5 Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Well, now this is entirely appropriate because what is the context that they're saying this in? She's his bride. And so, it's not surprising that he begins to enjoy her breasts. Uh, he calls them two pairs of different animals, two fawns, a picture of gentleness and sensuality. They were very, they were shy animals. You kind of like, you can scare them off quickly and they'll, they'll, they'll run off into the woods and hide. Twins of a gazelle known for their grace and their fertility. It is amazing how the song speaks about such intimate things, hey? It's speaking about intimate things, but no one here feels like it's crass. It's kind of gross and dirty and grimy. It's never pornographic, but it's just beautiful, careful, inviting, assuring. And so when he calls her breasts these things, it's like if you want to touch a fawn in the wild, you don't just kind of run up to it and grab it, (laughs) you know. That's not what happens, right? That'll... No, you'll have to come carefully and gently. You can do the rest of the application. (laughs) Verse 6, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. So last week, do you remember last week? Last week she used this actual picture of the day kind of breathing and the shadows fleeing. Do you remember what the context was? Let me read it. Chapter 2, verse 17 says this, Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. It's like she used that picture to say it's not the day. Wait for that day. But for now, you've got to go. But now that day has come. He's been on those mountains, but now he gets to enjoy these mountains, the mountains of Myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He's like, we've got all night. This is not a rush. And he's taking his time to enjoy, enjoy his wedding night until the day breathes, he says. And that's where the descriptions end. Thank goodness. But he has described seven parts of her body, seven being the number of perfection. So not surprising, he closes with these words in verse seven. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You know, I mean, she has spoken about her imperfections, hasn't she, and her insecurities back in chapter 1. But he's just like, I have no idea what you are talking about. I see no flaws at all. It's like that, that's, you know, probably blind love. It's, it's, it's much better this way. It's awful. It's an awful thought that he might see more flaws in her than she sees in herself. That would be tragic. No, he's like, I just don't see any of what you see. She is altogether beautiful. And it's not just her body, notice. You're altogether beautiful. It's her whole person. You can kind of see echoes of the Garden of Eden, can't you? After God made the world and it was just no flaws. Like he stood back and said, it is good. It has those kinds of picture to us, doesn't it? Clearly he wants to make love so he invites her in the next verse verse eight come with me from lebanon my bride come with me from lebanon depart the peak of amana and the peak of sinir and hermon from the dens of lions from the mountains sorry from the from the mountains of leopards he invites her to come come from those kind of inaccessible or even dangerous places and notice that the emphasis is come with me come with me like find your home here find your safety and security here with me. He will be a safe place for her as they make love. He calls her for the first time in this in the in the in the whole thing, my bride. I bet she loved hearing that for the first time. You know, come with me, my bride. She's like man. So he says another five times in the verse in the passage. Intimacy connected to marriage. The, actually, the most common word in this whole poem is the word. My. Repeats it over and over and over again. 20 times. My. My. She has become His. He has become hers. That is essentially what marriage is. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. We just become each other's. You can look at each other and go, Mine. She looks at you and goes, mine verse 9 he says you have captivated my heart my sister my bride you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes with one jewel of your necklace commentators explain that this phrase you have captivated my heart has the sense of like you just drive me crazy like in the good sense of like man i just you just drive me crazy and it doesn't take much for him to get set off does it it's like just one glance of your eye he's like Now, I just saw like that jewel on your necklace. I was like, oh my goodness. In love, driven crazy, weak at the knees. Now, he does call her my sister, which, again, but for them in ancient Near East love poetry, this was just, it was a term of endearment. It was a sense of, it got to the sense of of friendship that they have in their marriage. How important is friendship in a marriage? Extremely important. Husband and wives must enjoy one another not just in the bedroom, but outside the bedroom. That friendship actually becomes that enjoyment of one another in all of life becomes the context for enjoyment of one another in the bedroom. That marriage is kind of like friendship with sex. But it's not sex fueling the friendship. That's not the way it goes. Verse 10 says, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? It's like you are unsurpassed in his eyes. He's just like, you are beyond everything else I can think of. Nothing compares. Verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So you remember that the the, the promised land was known as what? The, The land flowing with milk, and honey. And he's like, there is milk and there is honey under your tongue. What he's essentially saying is, you are the promised land. Right? For me, you're it. You're, you're my promised land. This mention, though, of lips and of the tongue, it's, yeah, he's, he's getting at kissing, right? Probably a certain kind of kissing. If you're going to discover what's underneath her tongue, that's a kind of kissing. That is for marriage. But kissing matters. Notice this is taking, this would take a fair bit of time, you know, like on the wedding night. And do you make time, married couples, do you make time for this? Speaking to one another, kissing. The process isn't quick. He's patiently caring for her on this special night. Verse 12 says, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. That's what she has been to him so far. She is a garden, a great garden, but it's been locked to him. She is like a an amazing fountain, flowing with with water and life, but that has been a sealed fountain to him. In that day, well, it was the wealthy people who had gardens and, and parks like that and fountains, and 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 they would lock those things off so that it was just for their own leisure or for to bring in like close people to them into that intimacy of their garden. And 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 this guy's saying, for me, like th- those gardens weren't open to the public and that's what he's kind of saying your garden was not open to me it's been locked off from me that's what you've been to me it does again it reminds you of like the garden of eden doesn't it a locked off a ward off garden but full of like every natural delight you could imagine verse 13 keeps describing a garden your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices fruits Hen, henna with nard nard and saffron calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. This is a garden with like literally everything from everywhere that you could possibly imagine all in one place. Her, She, she really is like Eden. And her body, John Mayer would say, is a wonderland, a paradise. So how will she respond? We know what he wants but as her heart opened up to him. Is it? Verse 16, she says, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow together in the garden of love. So she finally speaks, but it's not directly to him. She speaks to the wind, to the north wind, to the south wind, and she says, blow on my garden. Open up, my garden. She tells the wind to do almost exactly what she told the daughters of Jerusalem not to do before it's time. Do not awaken, love. But she turns to the wind and says, do it. Do it to this garden. Awaken. It is time. She turns to him then and says this, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. See, just previously, she was talking about the garden as her garden. But now she says to him, now come and enjoy your garden. Verse 1, he responds, just how you might think. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. She's all his. And he possesses her, if you like. He takes her in. He enjoys her completely. And we don't get many more details than that. Because they're not really for us. That's for them. Um, for us on the outside, though, what's our role? We get to encourage them. See the last part of the whole, the whole passage. Eat, friends. Drink. And be drunk with love. Like, praise God. You are married Go for it. Love one another. Get, be intoxicated. Like, Be drunk on, not wine, on this, on your love for one another. It's an amazing poem, isn't it? Um, I don't know how you could like read Song of Songs and passages like this and just kind of walk away going, nah, I think sex doesn't really mean anything. I, think, I actually think it's just physical stuff and it's like getting your work made, a cup of coffee. It's just... It's, it's kind of got no inherent meaning at all. How could you possibly choose that over this? this ah, these last three verses are literally the center of the entire song, literally. The heart of the whole book. There are 111 lines of poetry before these last three verses. There are 111 lines of poetry after these three verses. As she opens up, he enters in and everyone says, go for it. Be drunk on love. It's the heart of the book. One commentator suggestively called it the climax of the book. Rock-solid commitment of covenant marriage meets white-hot sexual delight in each other. So I was trying to think how on earth would we apply this passage. Well, the obvious thing is probably the most obvious thing. But I do hope it elevates our sense of how significant sex is. So that for married couples, this song would stir, as you're hearing it, stir up longings, fresh longings for your spouse. And not just physically, but of course for all of them, all of who they are. To know more of this kind of love, more, know more of this kind of joy, this delight, this purity. See kind of love making as like a little trip to Eden. You know, a little chance to be in the Garden of Eden, in paradise together. You know, when um, Adam and Eve were naked, you know, and unashamed. And when she was brought to him, he, you know what he said? At last, my love has come along. And there she is. But it begins with his words to her, doesn't it? Like the marriage heats up through words. He's describing her, carefully chosen words. She, he's describing what she is like to him. And, and I hope that as we listen to this song, it just becomes more and more kind of unthinkable that we would go looking for this like anywhere else than covenant marriage. Where else are you going to get this, this delight, this joy? So then also, if you're not married here this morning, that it still would elevate the significance of sex, that you would see it like that. So you'd go, I, I, yeah, I'll wait because that's what I want to enjoy. I want to enjoy this picture. I will not pretend and act like sex is just nothing, like it's meaningless and it's just a physical thing. So we listened to two very different songs this morning: the Solomon song, the song of the country girl, and the shepherd boy. And in a sense, it's putting it before us and saying, "Well, which song will you listen to? Which song will you choose? Which song do you like the most?" Sure, Solomon's song looks impressive externally. It's tempting. His extravagance and all those material things, accumulating sexual partners, safety and security of all these bodyguards, but it's stale. He's the star of his own wedding, but the whole thing is so shallow, so empty, so alone. C.S. Lewis talks about men who go on the prowl, looking for women, uh, wanting sex. He says, he says, we might say he wants a woman, but we are dead wrong. He does not want a woman, he wants pleasure. What drives him to do what he is doing is himself. He wants a sexual thrill, and a woman is just a necessary part of the puzzle. Well, that's Solomon's song, isn't it? That's the world's song. But what about this song? What about the song of the country girl and shepherd boy, where it's just the two of us, committed for life? Not much materially, maybe, but they found like every treasure, full contentment, having one another. There's no army protecting them, but they are safe in the arms of each other. So which song? I wonder if you ask this song, this question, if you're, if you're married, which song does your marriage play? In a sense, like all of our marriages are like playing a song that the world is listening to. Is it playing this song? Because ultimately, this song is, because we know that in the Bible, that marriage is a profound mystery, and again, it relates to Christ and the church, the gospel song of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the song, if you like, that we want all of our marriages to play, that the world listens to, and they go, that's a different tune, that's a different melody, and that sounds amazing, like that sounds so sweet. It's the song of the Lord Jesus. He literally had no flaws. So when Pilate was on trial, and people were like trying to point out his flaws, and Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. He is the one who forms a covenant with his bride, his commitment that nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God. He is the perfectly, if you like, rock solid, faithful partner. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His love is the ultimate in white hot passion. What else could drive the Son to come from his eternity in heaven and come into earth, become a man, a servant, and even to death on a cross? For who? Us? To save us, to redeem us. We are not the pure bride. We're the adulterous bride. We're the sinful bride. We're the, we're the stained bride. Man, you can go to all of our sins, but just sexual sin will stain everyone. And He redeems her, purifies her, makes her clean by His precious blood. In Him, we find actually perfect, ultimate security. We find every comfort that money can't buy. And in him, we get to enter into a garden of the new heavens and the new earth where we will one day eat of the tree of life and live forever in communion, intimate communion with the God of the universe who loved us and knew us before the foundation of the world and saved us. So which song? Which song are we playing? Which song are we listening to? Solomon's The World's? songs of lust, songs of pornography, or this song, this song, which points to that ultimate song of the gospel. i I, could close with this illustration. I heard it a a little while ago by Sam Amati. He's an author, uh, pastor in America. He talked about two different stories. Maybe you know Greek mythology, and and so you're familiar with this. But uh, two stories from Greek mythology. The first is from Ulysses. Um, He was sailing a boat past... Uh, the island of sirens, sirens are those half bird, half women kind of creatures. And as, as boats sail past this island, they would sing these songs. And they were the most amazing sounding, beautiful songs. They used their sweet voices and they would lure, like inescapably, the, the sailors into their island. But the whole thing is a ruse. When they arrive, they are attacked and eaten by monsters. Well, Ulysses is going past that island, and he doesn't want his crew to be kind of like drawn into this island of sirens, and so he puts wax in all of their ears, um, so they can't hear the song. But he himself wants to hear the song, and so what does he do? He gets himself tied to the mast, and he says to the sailors, no matter what I say, no matter what happens, you do not listen to me, we do not go to that to the island of Sirens. And so they go past and the song plays and it's beautiful. They can't hear it, but he is driven mad and he pleads with them, get, take us there. And he, and, he, and he just goes at them, but they refuse to do it. They get past, they get past, but how? Well, you wonder how long that strategy could last, hey? How long could the crew ignore him? There's another story in, in, in Greek mythology um, It's the story of Jason and his Argonauts. They also are sailing past the same island. But instead of tying himself to a mast, he instead hires a guy named Orpheus, who is the greatest musician in all the world, and he told him to come along with them. And then as they pass by that island, he says, Jason says to Orpheus, now play your songs. Play your songs loud and play them for us to hear. And they sail past, and they do not go into the island. Why? Because they loved his songs. They preferred his songs. That actually, their songs didn't sound as good anymore. His songs were better, more beautiful, more desirable than anything the Sirens had to offer. And that, friends, is the gospel song of purity, of love, of romance, of marriage, of being rock-solid. And white hot, it displays to the world the kind of love that Christ has for his church. And that Christ offers freely to everybody to come. In the invitation to come, come away. Come away from the danger. Come away from your sin. Come away from your rebellion and come to me. I will take you to be with me forever. So how will we never fall for Solomon's songs? We got to listen to the better song think about amazing grace how sweet the sound it's going back to that song that gospel song of the grace of the lord jesus christ let me pray heavenly father we've feels like we've covered so much so i just pray that what's meant to land in each of our hearts would land that ultimately for all of us we would look to you as the ultimate fulfillment of all the desires that we have we thank you for the gift of the lord jesus so wonderful so precious so satisfying help us to know more and more of that we pray in jesus name amen well let me now lead us